1 Corinthians chapter 15, we left off at uh, verse 28. That was the last verse that we read in chapter 15. Paul's been talking to the Corinthian church about the risen Savior. Uh, resurrection was a question that they really were struggling with. Apparently, because of their Greek culture, uh, the, the idea of a resurrected body didn't really fit what they were accustomed to as a people that were so familiar with the customs of the Greek uh, literary giants of the day that that talked about spiritual things, but in a much, much different way than what Paul had presented. Remember when Paul was in Athens, I believe I mentioned that the last time, uh, one of the reasons why they doubted everything that he was saying, many of them thought him to be a fool uh, because he mentioned the resurrection of Christ. Only a few of them actually wanted to hear more from him. The rest thought he was just, uh, you know, just a, a crazy man. Uh, but that was the Greek culture, and the Corinthian church apparently allowed some of that into the church. And in their writing to Paul with the very many questions, apparently they talked about the question of the resurrection, and Paul had come to the realization from that that some were teaching that there is no resurrection. So Paul is spending this time in this chapter that we have before us talking about the resurrection. And in the first portion, as we, we did last week, we studied uh, the fact that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And he gave a great argument about that that would be such a great refutation to what they believed with regard to the bodily resurrection of our Lord. But now, in this portion, he's going to go on further to discuss the fact that not only is Christ raised from the dead, but the promise of God through that risen Savior is that we too will be raised from the dead in a resurrected body. Um, and he begins now to unfold for us the details that are given in this wonderful chapter that are found nowhere else in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, certainly, but um, there is a great deal of information that he provides here that isn't mentioned anywhere else. So it's great that he did have this opportunity to present the details that he does to the Corinthian church and to us. So beginning in ch chapter 15, verse 29, he, we're going to actually enter into a particular statement that Paul makes that brings a good deal of controversy among the uh, theologians of our day. Uh, in fact, there are several dozens of interpretations of verse 29, which is where we're going to be starting. So we'll move fairly quickly through that. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I want to make sure that we all understand that what Paul is talking about is not a church ordinance. It is a custom of the Gentiles that apparently the Corinthian church was actually allowing, again, uh, to be taking place in their local assembly. It says in verse 29, otherwise, which is with reference to the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now you might see the complication here for the believer in the fact that it seems to be indicating that baptism was being performed by individuals on behalf of people who had already died. 
And that is not a church custom. It is not ordained by the Lord. It is not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. Baptism is a believer's baptism, and you cannot be baptized on behalf of somebody else to provide for them any way of entering into the kingdom of God. If they're dead and they weren't saved, then they will not be able to change that. Their fate is sealed at the point of death. So the Christians who die are in Christ and they are saved, but those who are outside of Christ cannot be saved through somebody else baptizing themselves on behalf of that dead person. It's interesting that the Mormon Church does that. The Mormon Church has a genealogical database that is superior to almost every database in the world, and they use it for the primary reason for fulfilling what is disclosed here in this verse 29 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. They believe that this is a mandate from God to baptize for the dead, and that's what the Mormon church does do. But it is certainly not biblical, and it is certainly not something that Paul is here uh, speaking of with regard to the church performing this. Keep Take another look at what he says here, and hopefully it will clear up any uh, misunderstanding. It says, what will they do? Not what will we do, or what will you do, but what will they do? He's obviously talking about people who are not part of the church when they baptize for the dead. So again, he's talking about those who performed that kind of ritual who were probably not Christians, but from a pagan religion, that sort of thing had been done in Corinth or in that region. And Paul is using this as an emphasis with regard to the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, and if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then why are they baptizing for the dead if there's no resurrection? That's why he brings it up. So, moving on in verse 30, it says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul is saying, here's another reason why the, the fact that Christ has risen from the dead is so important. If he hadn't risen from the dead, then why are we going through so much pain and trouble? Why are we so much in jeopardy, standing every day in, in troubles and tribulations and trials and uh, you know, angry mobs trying to, to kill them, uh, Jews as well as Gentiles, seeking to take his life? Uh, why would he be willing to do that? In fact, he says in verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul is saying, I am willing to suffer death, even to the, the point of death, for the sake of proclaiming what I know to be true. And so he's saying, I die daily. And he says in verse 32, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now here in verse 32 he's saying, if I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, and I don't believe that's a statement that Paul is making that he had to fight against lions or anything else in the Roman Colosseum. He was a Roman, Colise uh, Roman citizen, and Roman citizens would not have been subjected to the Colosseum fights 
uh, between men and the animals in the Colosseum for the games they played there and in the Roman uh, culture of the day. But I think he's more likely talking metaphorically as we find in Psalm 22 where David talks about bulls have surrounded me. You know, the same idea is given here by Paul that he's fighting against these beasts in Ephesus. And he's, I think, using that term metaphorically for the uh, opposition that he was facing from men uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus was not an easy place for him to minister, but he was there probably longer than anywhere else in all of his missionary journeyings. And he's writing from Ephesus, by the way, to this Corinthian church. So he says, again, if, if I'm willing to die for my faith, you know, how foolish it would be for me to do so if the dead do not rise. So he's given these two examples here in these few verses that we've read to show that it is really ludicrous for any one of us as believers to even be willing to die for our faith if there is no resurrection. And notice that he quotes here not a passage from the Old Testament, but rather one of the Greek um, authors of the day. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That was a philosophy that many Greeks had. Uh, the Stoics perhaps not so, but there were many who did really take that attitude. Hey, this life is all that we've got, and let's just be merry and drink and go through life as well as we can, for that's all that we've got. Take note of the fact also that it wasn't just Greeks who rejected the idea of a resurrection. Remember, Jesus was confronted before his being sent to the cross by Sadducees who questioned Jesus about a, a really ridiculous arrangement that uh, um, they presented to him where a man had a wife and the man died and then the man's brother took her to wife and he died. And so every one of his brothers died, up to seven brothers had her as a wife. And then they said, well, in the resurrection then, whose wife will she be? The reason they were presenting that was because they wanted it to be a ridiculous uh, kind of a question demonstrating in their minds why they did not believe in a resurrection. Uh, so they were using it to stump Jesus, but it was because they did not believe in the resurrection either. So it wasn't just Gentiles, it was Jews as well who did not, many of them, believe in a resurrection. So Paul is making a very strong series of arguments here, both about Christ having been raised from the dead and how foolish it would be if he hadn't been raised from the dead for any one of us to continue to serve Christ and believe that uh, we have faith in Christ and all of the wonderful blessings that we have, but if there's no resurrection, Paul says we are among men most to be pitied. Now in verse 33, he says to them very strongly now, do not be deceived. Remember last Sunday, we talked also in Jesus, all of that discourse about the fact that Jesus warned his listeners, do not be deceived. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be ignorant of the things that, that are deceptive around us. And we know that there is much deception in 
and around us every day. We have to know the Lord well and trust in Him, know His Word well, and be able to defend the faith that we have. So again, Paul says, be not deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So what he's saying to their uh, church in Corinth is that you're allowing evil company to influence you as a believer. Don't let that be the case in us. And Paul was saying to them, make sure that you understand that is not acceptable. But they were doing that. They had many people in Corinth who were misleading much of the church with very obvious errors that they were promoting. And the church was kind of going along with it. That's why Paul has addressed so many of those problems in this letter that he's written. Finally, in verse 34, he says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. So that's a warning that Paul has given the Corinthian church, and it's certainly something that we need to take very seriously as well. Awake to righteousness. Make sure that we do not allow any heretic teachings to enter into our fellowship as believers. And he reasons with them, because they have allowed this, it's the conclusion that he's making here that some have do not have the knowledge of God. They should have, but they did not know God's word. So it's very critically important that the Corinthian church and any other church, wherever we are, whoever we are, we need to be very faithful to study God's word and know what God says and know that good doctrine is important. Verse 35 now begins to unfold for us the wonderful information that Paul provides the Corinthian church and us with regard to our resurrection. He's focused on Christ's resurrection. Now he's focusing on our resurrection through this time from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. It's a wonderful presentation uh, and it's one of the most important portions of Scripture with regard to our destiny as believers. He says in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So Paul is here anticipating the questions that some of them might have because of their lack of belief in the resurrection. They want to know, well, how? How are the dead raised up? And with what kind of body? They know that the body goes into the ground and the body decays. How is that going to work out? Is it possible that God can put it all back together again? They're wondering, and, and Paul is saying, I know that you're thinking this, so I'm going to address these two things. But he says, after asking those two questions, rhetorically, now he says, foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So he's answering the assumed question by saying, Look, if you really think that, it's a foolish thought. And this is why. Whatever you sow in the ground, it dies. And that's exactly what should happen. When you take seed, you put it in the ground, and the seed does indeed die. But what you sow, what comes out of the ground, isn't what you put in, but something else altogether. And he's using this as an illustration for the resurrection. 
and the body that we will have. He says in verse 37, What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. So leave it up to God, Paul says. He knows what He's doing. It is His choice. He chooses. It pleases Him to give each one a body that suits Him. To each one, each seed, its own body. And then he goes on to talk about the various differences of bodies in our physical realm. He says in verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So I read all of that because it's all one section that talks about the various kinds of bodies that we are familiar with in the physical realm. You can look around and you can see that the flesh of men is very different than the flesh of birds and fish and all of the other animals. We are unique. Our DNA is very, very different from all of the other species upon the earth. There are a few exceptions, but we're closer with regard to our DNA composition to mice than we are to monkeys. So, But that doesn't mean we descended from or evolved from mice, nor does it mean that we evolved from monkeys. God created us differently. That was his choice. He formed us. And I love the passage of scripture that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made because God formed us in the womb and we have been given a great position of all creation. We are not anything like any other creation. God has made us unique. The Bible tells us he made us a little lower than the angels. And there's one day that when we are raised from the dead and we are given our glorified bodies that we will actually be judging the angels and we will be over them in that sense. Uh, so we are now in this place that we live contained within a body, a body of flesh, flesh and blood and bones, and sinew. But we're told that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot allow this body to enter into eternity with God because this body has a sin nature. And this sin nature has been given to us through the genealogy that we have that goes all the way back to Adam. 
So that's why he spent a good deal of time here talking about the resurrection of the dead with regard to this body being corrupt. It was sown in corruption. It will be raised in incorruption. There will be a change. The body that presently we now have is corrupt. The body that we will have is going to be without corruption. It's sown in dishonor. Sinful nature. It is raised in glory. Without sin. Glorified bodies. Like unto his glorified body. Um, we shall be like him, John tells us in 1 John 3.2. And also in Philippians 3.21, Paul says that our vile bodies, our corrupt bodies, will be changed to be like his glorified bodies, body. And so, what does that mean? It means that we'll be transformed. It means that we'll be metamorphosized. We'll change from this body that we now exist in it's a space suit, if you will, but it's not suitable for heaven. But there is a body that we will be clothed with that is indeed suitable for that environment. We need, in this environment, this body is built for taking care of our basic needs. We feed it and we breathe air into our lungs and the blood circulates and all of the various chemical processes that are going on in our bodies. It's a wonderful thing to, to know some of the detail that we are able to know about the way the body functions. But it is a vile body nonetheless, a corrupt body. And that's why he's saying now in, again, verse 45, it is written, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving Spirit. Now, he identifies the first man as Adam. The second, last Adam, I should say, is a reference to Jesus Christ. Adam became a living being when God breathed his spirit into Adam. He became a living being, we're told in the Genesis account. But Jesus, the last Adam, was like Adam in the sense that neither one of them came through the womb as the result of a, a, a co-relationship with man and woman. Adam was created. Jesus was born of a virgin, but his father wasn't a man. His father was God. And so they are alike in that sense, except that Adam was a living being, but he couldn't give life. Jesus came to give life. And that's why Paul identifies the first man, Adam, became a living being. He died because of sin. He passed on that sin nature to all of us. But the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. And in his having been put to death on the cross for our sins and raised up from the dead uh, to save us and prevent us from having to go through that same death process as we would have if we had not believed in him. He's a life-giving spirit, a spiritual man. Now, I suggest to you that Adam originally, when he first walked in the Garden of Eden, was a spiritual man. Uh, God had said, let us make man in our image. And I believe that Adam was spirit, soul, and body. And the spirit was the predominant component of his triunity. But when he sinned, that got reversed. 
And now Adam became a person who was body and soul and the spirit had died. And so when Christ came to die for our sins, he made it so that we could believe in him and be born again, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us we have been quickened. In other words, we've been made alive when once we were dead in sin. And that making alive or quickening implies that our spirits were then brought back to life. And so now we are body, soul, and spirit, but we're still body-driven. We're still blood-driven. But in the resurrection, there will be no blood, I believe, that will be interfering with our existence as resurrected saints of God. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his apostles in the room where they had locked the doors and the windows, and Jesus just came in the midst of them without having to open the door or have the door open for him. He just appeared. Interestingly, they thought he was a spirit, but he said, Spirits do not have flesh and bone as you see I have. Note that he didn't say, Spirits do not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. He never mentioned blood. He was a spirit-driven, glorified body. And I believe that's what we are expecting when we will be glorified as well. That we will be spirit-driven instead of blood-driven. Presently, life is in the blood. That will change when we receive our glorified bodies. Again, we will be like Him. We will be, we will be changed to a different kind of body that will be able to uh, live in a complete unearth-like experience. So he says in verse 46, However, the spiritual Christ is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. So you were born in the natural bodies and then you were made to be able to obtain a spiritual body by virtue of what Christ has done because he is a life-giving spirit. So verse 47 says, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And... As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So that's our destiny. We will be made like him, heavenly instead of earthly. And so in verse 49 he says, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We're being transformed into his image. As his ambassadors, the Holy Spirit does that and will continue to do that. And we will ultimately be glorified when we no longer are in these mortal bodies. So that's why the resurrection is so very, very important for us all. And so wonderfully good news to all of us who believe. Because we will be indeed no longer having to deal with sickness, with pain, with sorrow, with doctors and all kinds of things that we have to endure in this life. There's victory ahead. And that's what he's going to be talking about next. In verse 50 he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit 
the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. It's impossible. Now he goes on to say, this is a mystery that now he's going to unfold for his readers in this letter. Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is um, a, a metaphor for death. We shall not all die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Paul says here, very much what he says, where Paul tells us of the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the body of believers. He tells us in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. He talks about that snatching away, that apardzo, um, it's, it's a Greek word that means taking up quickly. It's what the Latin translation calls the rapture, and we talk, talk about the rapture of the church. That's where we find that information. But he says in that passage that the Lord will appear in the clouds with a voice of the archangel and a loud trumpet of God. That's important because here in this passage that we just read, he mentions that in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which is a very, very fast moment of time, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Paul believed that he would be among those who would be caught up together with the rest of the saints alive at that time when Christ comes for his church. Now, it came a point in later uh, Paul's letters, uh, especially the, the last letter that he wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy, he knows that he's about to die and, and he hasn't been resurrected and he's apparently ready to uh, go to be with the Lord through death. And so he's come to the conclusion that perhaps the Lord is not going to come while he's still alive at that juncture in his life. But here, as he's in Ephesus, expecting the Lord's return at any moment, he's writing as though it's going to happen. Imminent return. Now, of course, it didn't happen then. It didn't happen a hundred years later. It didn't happen until even this day. And we still are waiting for that wonderful experience that we know of as a blessed hope that Jesus will come in the clouds and take us all to be with him. But if he doesn't come and we do die and we're put into the grave, we can know from this great promise in this word that we've been reading tonight that this body isn't what will be raised up in glory. It will be changed. Just like when you put a seed of grain into the ground, that seed dies, it gets corrupt, it softens, the shell cracks open, and out of that comes new life. And it moves upward toward the warmth of the sun and breaks through the soil and begins to blossom and grow at great speed. And that's the new life that we can look forward to as well. For this corruptible, he says in verse 53, must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice the word, it must. It's got to happen. It's got to be because the resurrection, resurrection is a certainty. 
So, in verse 54, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he quotes, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is law. So Paul is saying here, we have such a wonderful promise that God has made for us in his word. This mystery that he has just unfolded for us, that we will be all changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet sound, and we will be raised up to be with him forever, along with all those who have passed on before us. This is a wonderful, wonderful portion of scripture. And, and that's why Paul breaks out into this glorious praising of his God our God, by saying death is swallowed up in victory. We have victory in Jesus. That is a promise of God's word. I love that beautiful statement that he makes. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And again, he says in, in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. It's because of sin that we have to experience death unless we're among those who were caught up at the last trump who have not died, there is a promise to those who are still alive, if we are among them, wonderful. But if we go to the grave before that happens, not a problem for God. He can take us out of the grave as he will, and he doesn't have to worry about the fact that we have gone into a, a total decay and all we are are bones left in that coffin. He can reconstruct. He knows our DNA. He doesn't need to worry about whether or not our heart was uh, donated or our kidneys were donated or some other body part was donated to another person. He knows all of that. He can put it back together. He doesn't need any of that which is remaining in the grave but it's because of the fact that he wants to demonstrate to the lost and dying world that there is a resurrection that will have taken place. When he says the graves will be empty, that, I believe, is going to be a remarkable thing that people will see and observe that certain graves in all of the cemeteries throughout all of the lands will be empty and opened and others will not be. And it's because... There is no sting any longer of death because sin has been dealt with. The strength of the sin is in the law or is the law. The law points us to the fact that we are indeed sinners. The law cannot save, but it points us to the fact that we are sinners and need salvation. That's what the law did. It's a schoolmaster. That's all it was for. It's the strength of sin is the law in that sense. But, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a word of praise. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Keep looking up. In other words, your redemption draws near. The promise of God is a certainty. The promise of God is yes and amen. All of what he has spoken regarding birth, 
and the death and the resurrection of Christ was given so that we can know that that is also our destiny for all of us who believe. There is no question or should be never anyone who would doubt the promises of God with regard to these things that He has spoken of to us in this Word. This is a remarkable portion of Scripture. And coupled with all of the other various portions of Scripture that we know in the New Testament that speak of the resurrection, it gives us hope. And again, that's why Paul called it our blessed hope. It is indeed something that we can and should look forward to and expect imminently. It could happen any day. It might not happen until we've gone into the grave and had been there for 10, 15, 20 or more years. But whatever the situation, God's timing is perfect and He will perform it because He has promised it. So that's what we have to look forward to. Glorified bodies, incorrupted, replacing that which is corrupt, sown in weakness, raised in power, We don't know all of the details, certainly, that I would like to know. I I don't know about you. But he's answered the question, how will the dead be raised? And with what body? Paul says, it's God's choice. He chooses how it will be, and he also chooses what kind of body it will be. And I'm okay with that. Because I want God to please himself. I don't think we'll be very, very upset at all. I hope you don't think so with our resurrected bodies. There are some who think we'll all be, oh, around the age of 30 because it seems to be an ideal age in some people's minds. I don't think that's necessarily so. Um, I'm okay if he wants to make me look like an older man or a younger man, but I do know that we got a glimpse of two men on the Transfiguration Mount that Jesus spoke to, Moses and Elijah, they were recognizable men because they didn't have name tags and Peter knew who they were. So it's pretty much a given, I believe, that we'll intuitively know each other and everybody else there. We won't need to be introduced to David, nor will we need to be introduced to Solomon or Samson or or, uh, uh, any of the other prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, will be able, I believe, to know as we have been known. That's the promise of God's Word. There's coming a day when we will be like Him. And right now, we're in these bodies. And we are indeed being transformed. It's a slow process. I'm reminded caterpillar crawls around for a short period of time chewing leaves filling itself up as much as it can consuming as much as it can and then it reaches a point in its short life where it then begins to make itself a cocoon wrapping itself inside this cocoon And it looks as though it intentionally brings itself to a place of death. And so it is. 
But in that death of the caterpillar, God has made it so that there's a metamorphosis that takes place. And eventually, that caterpillar begins to change. It's a slow process. But over time, it develops wings. And it breaks through that cocoon that it created as an instrument of its death. And new life comes from it. It's a beautiful picture of what Paul has described here. Something completely different. It had nothing to do with its having become a butterfly. That was God's choice. That's what it is here for us as well. And I'm praying that God will soon come for His church. And if He does not, I'm praying that we will be able to stand firm in the promises of God. In this life, we have great blessings still. In that life that is to come, is life evermore. Eternity with Him. Singing praise to our God. Standing before His throne with all the saints. I'm kind of looking forward to playing my guitar, which is the Greek word for guitar, in heaven along with David. Um, he's got a few other instruments that he's going to bring along, a harp and an eight-stringed instrument and a ten-stringed instrument. So I'm sure that we'll be able to play all of those together in perfect harmony and making wonderful music together in heaven with Neil and others who have gone on before us. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be a great time of rejoicing. Let us serve him well until then. God bless you. Amen. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. See you all Sunday. Yep. Yes.